Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Lancet Haematology. I'm Richard Lane and in this podcast we're going to be discussing Castleman disease and I'm delighted that our guest interviewee who is about to introduce himself is both an author of a paper and an accompanying comment that we publish on this subject. Here he is introducing himself. My name is Dr. David Fagenbaum. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and the associate director of the Penn Orphan Disease Center. David Fagenbaum, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Hematology. We're here to discuss a paper of which you are an author, and this concerns a relatively rare disease called Castleman's disease. Tell us about this disease. I have to confess this is a new one on me. Tell me about the disease, first of all. Idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease is a disease where the immune system becomes activated and releases inflammatory molecules called cytokines, which cause multiple organ dysfunction. Unfortunately, for many years, it's been very poorly understood, and there have been a few issues within the literature and within the medical community that have really slowed down progress, and we're trying to to target those uh, in part through this paper. This is a rare disease. Presumably, one of the main things you wanted to achieve here is to to actually describe the disease and try and understand it better. So are we at the point now where this is a rare disease, and what you're wanting to do is to raise awareness of the disease so clinicians can be better prepared to, to detect it, to diagnose it, and ultimately to treat it? That's exactly right. About five years ago, if you looked at uh, medical resources, uh, uh, there's one up to date in particular about Castleman disease, you would have found that most medical resources would say that all cases of multicentric Castleman disease, which is multicentric means there's multiple centers and large lymph nodes, they would say that almost all or all cases were caused by HIV and the HHV8 virus turning on the immune system and, and, and causing this in, intense inflammatory cascade. But about five years ago when I began studying the disease, I kept reading case report after case report of patients that were HIV negative and HHV8 negative. And I talked to doctors who said, oh yeah, I have dozens of patients that are HIV negative, HHV8 negative. And I was so confused. I, I couldn't understand why does the medical literature continue to talk about all cases of multicentric castle disease being caused by this virus when it seems like every case report says we're the first case report, but every week a new case report was coming out saying that. So it became pretty clear that this group of HHV8 negative, or what we now call idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, is a significant group. And actually, our, our paper in the Lancet Hematology found that at least one-third of all published cases of multicentric Castleman disease are HHV8 negative, which is far more than previous uh, publications had acknowledged. Thank you. And what else do we know about this disease in in terms of the different types that there are and the symptoms that the patients have? It used to be thought that there were two subtypes, unicentric, where you have enlarged lymph nodes in one region of the body, and multicentric, where there's multiple regions. Um, As I mentioned before, we now are subgrouping multicentric into that group that's HHV8 positive, where there's a virus that's stimulating the immune system, and that group that's HHV8 negative, which we call idiopathic. So those are the three subtypes, and patients uh, can present with a variety of symptoms. On one end of the spectrum, flu-like symptoms, night sweats, weight loss, and on the other end of the spectrum, patients will have sepsis-like multiple organ failure, where they're in the intensive care unit, and every single organ is shutting down due to this really intense cytokine storm. Great heterogeneity, then, under the umbrella of Castleman's disease. That's exactly right. And what we hope to do by better characterizing the clinical features of this 
this incredibly heterogeneous disease, that we may be able to identify subgroups even within those three subtypes I mentioned so that we can start pinning down the molecular underpinnings of what is actually causing this disease, as there may be different causes for different groups. Absolutely. So what you've done here then is, is very much a, a literature review, isn't it, to define these uh, this heterogeneity under the umbrella of Castleman's disease. What were the main things that you found out in your study? The first thing is that we clearly demonstrated that there is a significant portion of multicenter Castleman disease patients that are HHV8 negative. We found almost 2,000 published case reports since 1995 of multicenter Castleman disease. And of that group, we found 33% that had proven uh, testing negative for HHV8. So we found that there's a significant portion that are HHV8 negative. We also were able to characterize the clinical features, and we found a set of clinical features that were really common to almost all patients, elevated C-reactive protein, decreased albumin levels, varying in platelet levels, increased LDH. There's a variety of laboratory and then also clinical features, enlarged liver and spleen, renal dysfunction, uh, bone marrow dysfunction, that we think could serve as the basis, and we believe will serve as the basis for an international diagnostic criteria. But before we could develop a diagnostic criteria, we had to synthesize and go through all the published cases, all 2,000 plus, to really pull out what are the key features clinically and laboratory-wise. In addition to, to describing and synthesizing the clinical features, we also looked at associated diseases, and we found that there's actually a three times increased prevalence of malignancy amongst published multicenter Castleman disease patients versus what you would expect from age match controls. And in the literature, we'd seen before papers that had mentioned our case reports of patients with multicenter Castleman disease that also developed cancer. But this is the first time that there's ever been a systematic approach to try to to see just how increased is the prevalence or how increased is the risk. We also found that over 20% of patients in our group of 128 patients had autoantibodies or had um, autoimmune hemolytic anemia. These patients have a dysregulated immune system, and for that reason, there are autoantibodies in the blood. Finally, I think a really important um, aspect of this was that no one had ever inventoried the treatments available for Castleman disease and, and, and tried to make an attempt to uh, characterize the effectiveness of treatments. And so we did that. We went through and we found that over 20 different treatments are used for idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease. Unfortunately, there's very little data behind each of them. But we were able to go through and develop two-year survivals and also provide data on what percentage of patients that were treated went into a complete or partial response or partial remission. And then finally, the last thing I would say is that we also looked at survival and outcomes. And we found that 12% of patients that we had two years' worth of follow-up data on died within those first two years. And then we also uh, found that 22% of patients where we had uh, survival data died by time of follow-up, which was a median of 29 months. So we identified that this is a clinically heterogeneous disease. We found that it's associated with cancer, that there are a variety of treatments used, and unfortunately, many patients relapse, and it is deadly. What are the hints about treatment? Steroids? And there are, there are, there are some, some therapeutics, aren't they, that target interleukin-6, but is that, is that too narrow an aim, interleukin-6? Uh, is that right? It's a great question. So we, um, we as a field are very pleased that there is now one FDA and EMA-approved drug for HHV8-negative multicenter Castleman disease, and that's a drug that targets interleukin-6. Just as you said, it's a monoclonal antibody against interleukin-6. And for so long, um, the field has, has really considered 
idiopathic MCD to be an IL-6 driven disorder. And I think without a doubt, at least a portion of patients with this heterogeneous disorder, their disease really is driven by interleukin-6, and those patients will respond to anti-IL-6 therapy. But from the single um, randomized controlled trial, the investigators found that there was a 34% of patients uh, had either a complete or a partial response to therapy, and two-thirds of patients had no response to treatment. The good news about the drug is that there's very low side effect profile. So for us, we feel that the drug is an important, very important contribution for those patients that will respond to it. Um, but unfortunately, we also recognize that not everyone, and in fact about two-thirds of patients, will not respond to anti-IL-6 therapy. And we're particularly interested to identify what are those second-line drugs available. Historically, um, you're exactly right, historically it's been uh, corticosteroids or cytotoxic chemotherapy. And unfortunately, uh, patients, though they will respond initially to cytotoxic chemotherapy, they often do not have a sustained response. And, and that really comes down to the fact that I mentioned earlier, idiopathic MCD involves profound immune activation, uh, T-cell, monocyte, um, B-cell, uh, tremendous immune activation, um, which releases these cytokines and causes a cytokine storm. Now, you can imagine that cytotoxic chemotherapy, um, given in the right doses and the right agents, can completely wipe out um, that, in, that immune system and that intense immune response, and in doing so, stopping the disease. But unfortunately, that's not a sustainable approach because uh, Unfortunately, those cells will repopulate and the disease will come back again. What are the take-home messages or next steps, if you like, from your paper? I think the first take-home message is for clinicians to be able to see the key clinical features that are associated with idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. Up until now, most diagnoses um, have been made uh, with really just lymph node uh, histopathology data. So there's a particular appearance to the lymph node of a multicentric Castleman disease patient. And most patients are diagnosed really just based on what their lymph nodes look like under the microscope. But from building consensus amongst international experts, it's very clear that this should be a clinico-pathological diagnosis. So pathologists often tell clinicians, they say, please correlate with clinical features. But unfortunately, up until now, there's never been a synthesis of the data to be able for someone to say, well, what are all those features? They would need to go through um, many case reports to get these, these data. So what I'm hoping is that uh, these data from our study will serve as that uh, clinical correlate for clinicians when they're considering maybe this could be multicenter Castleman disease. That's number one. I think number two, and very importantly, we found the uh, increased prevalence of malignancy amongst these patients. So I think it's crucial that clinicians, when they do diagnose idiopathic MCD or as they follow and treat their patients, that they make sure that they evaluate for additional uh, or, or for malignancies that may be occurring in these patients. Third, I think it's important for clinicians to look at what is available treatment-wise. As I mentioned, there is one FDA and EMA-approved treatment. I think that that is an important um, option. I think that hopefully this paper can provide additional options and data around additional options, particularly for those patients that don't respond. And then finally, um, we found that there is a significant and important mortality associated with this disease. Previous studies have found about a 35%. 35% of patients die within five years of diagnosis, and about two-thirds of patients die within 10 years of diagnosis. We've known that it's a deadly disease. Unfortunately, a lot of 
clinicians when they do make the diagnosis of Castleman. They may not have treated many patients, and they read in the literature that this is a quote-unquote benign disorder, and so they, they feel that they can treat the patient even without experience, even without spending much time reading the literature. And hopefully this paper further... Um, supports the notion that this is a deadly disease and that patients deserve and need to have a clinician that really spends the time getting to understand the disease or that's willing to refer the patient um, to an expert that does understand the disease. And I guess the last thing I would mention is that uh, something you brought up earlier, which is that we really need to get down to the to the molecular underpinnings. We're, we're looking at a disease and, and diagnosing it based on clinical characteristics and lymph node features. But what we hope is that having these clinical features determined and being able to maybe subgroup within what we call the TAFRA syndrome group can help us to elucidate what is causing the immune response. And right now we have four hypotheses for what could be causing the really intense immune response that's seen in idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease. One is that there's a virus that's stimulating this immune response, a virus that maybe we've never discovered before. Another is that there's a small population of malignant cells within the lymph node, somatically mutated cells that could be driving this, similar to what you see in Hodgkin's lymphoma. The third is that there is an auto-inflammatory disorder and that there is a germline genetic mutation and the ability to control the immune system. And lastly, that this is an autoimmune disease and that those autoantibodies are not a result of the disease, but actually potentially helping to drive the disease. Plenty of scope for further research, given uh, right. your four hypotheses there. Mm -hmm. Last, but by no means least, in terms of our discussion, we should tell our audience that uh, unusually for someone discussing a paper in one of the Lancet journals, you're actually a patient as well. You actually have Castleman's disease yourself, is that right? That's exactly right. I was diagnosed with idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease while I was a medical student, and it was my experience as a medical student and beginning to try to understand the literature around this disease and seeing how little was known that motivated me to try to take on uh, this disorder. People can read your commentary alongside the article, which, which goes into it. But one thing that struck me was how important the Castleman disease um, network that you've been involved in has been, which I think you set up in 2012. Can you just tell us about that? That's exactly right. So I, I was diagnosed as a medical student. In fact, even had my last rites administered to me when I was so sick um, back in 2010. At that point, I decided I wanted to dedicate my life towards better understanding Castleman disease and, and trying to save my life and the, and the lives of about 5,000 patients diagnosed each year with this disease. So for me, I saw two paths forward. The first was to begin conducting research at the University of Pennsylvania, which um, early on included beginning to work on um, what is now being published in the Lancet Hematology with this paper. And the other parallel path was to establish the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, which is a global initiative of physicians, researchers, patients around the world joining together to take on Castleman disease. And, and really the key, and I think why we've been so successful, is that we focus on collaboration and that we provide online forums, in-person meetings, webinars, any way that we can connect our researchers, physicians, and patients, we do. And, 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 and that's really the first step. We connect them, and then once we've connected them, we use their collective knowledge to prioritize research. And finally, um, we use that prioritized research agenda to drive forward and, and really to, to execute on, on a, a very ambitious international research agenda, which has resulted in a tremendous amount of progress thus far. And I hope that this model can become a model for many other rare diseases. You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, it just sounds like 
such a supreme model of, of how to go about creating the infrastructure that is required for research and ultimately treatment for other rare diseases. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? You've got to create the, the foundation, the, which fundamentally is a communication foundation to begin with, isn't it? That's exactly right. When we started the CDCN, we, we decided we aren't just going to start a foundation the way that, that many foundations have been started. Let's look at the real issues here. Let's look at the root causes for why we have such a mess around Castleman disease, why we know so little. And really, when we looked at the root causes, we found that no one was collaborating. We found that the research that was being done was being done by just a couple of centers, um, by people who weren't necessarily even the most qualified folks to be doing the research. And we found that there was no opportunity for patients to provide samples to the, to the wider research community and funding for research. So each group was working on their own, and, and truly uh, the cliche, working in silos, it was very true, at least for Castleman disease. And this is something that I hear from many other rare diseases, that like us, little collaboration no sort of overarching plan or strategy, and few opportunities for patients to contribute samples and funding for research. And for that reason, we were moving at a very slow pace. But now that we've gotten over those hurdles, and now that we're able to focus on the science, we're moving much more quickly. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, uh, David Fagenbaum, on the line from University of uh, Pennsylvania in the United States. Good luck with all your work, and I hope we'll speak again. I would look forward to that very much, and thank you so much for your time and giving me the opportunity to share the work that we're doing.